Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 17th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week's Technology Corner is being recorded just a bit early, recording on Thursday, June 14th. I'll tell you why in just a little bit. Let's start this week with Pandora's Box. The disc jockey is dead. Now, I'm old enough to remember when one of the reasons to listen to radio included the DJ. He, and it was almost always a he back in those days, he was the one who tied the music together, wove in the commercials, talked long or short enough to make a clean network join, and that's back in the days when most stations did join the networks for news on the hour. The DJ took requests. He probably kept an eye on the transmitter readings. But with the clear channelization of radio, most DJs you hear are just voice tracks. Sometimes they're recorded, as this program is this week, days before it's actually scheduled. And often they're not even in the town where the radio station is. In Columbus, you'll find independent stations, such as CD-101, which is WWCD, and the Columbus Board of Education's station, WCBE, with their music programming during the middle of the day. They have local DJs, but those stations are a dying breed. Pandora, to get back to where we were starting with this report, is just another nail in the coffin of radio. Pandora is a streaming music service. You pick the music, Pandora plays the music. Now, you can pay $36 a year on omit advertisements, or you can use the service for free and see an occasional ad. More about the ads in a bit. Pandora is what they call a music discovery service. It has a goal of helping you to find the music that you like based on music you're already familiar with. You tell Pandora what you like. It finds musically related artists that you'll probably enjoy once you hear them. All of this is powered by what's called the Music Genome Project, which the service describes as, and I quote, a crazy project started back in early 2000 to capture the complex musical DNA of songs using a large team of highly trained musicians. It's free. It's legal. Now, there are some restrictions. You cannot specify a particular song. There's no rewind or replay button. So, in this way, Pandora is a lot like an all-music radio station with no DJ. But if Pandora plays something you don't like, you can tell it you don't like what you're hearing. And Pandora will move immediately to something else it thinks you'll like. And it'll remember the one you didn't like. Pandora does pay licensing fees to SoundExchange, ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. Those are all the music licensing organizations. They pay the licensing fees for all the music they play. The payments ultimately go to the performing artists, songwriters, and record labels. This is an interesting idea, and it's not the only such service out there. It happens to be the first one I've looked at.
When you arrive at Pandora for the first time, you can tell it an artist's name or a song, either one, and that becomes a seed. Pandora will then play some music for you. After a few selections, you'll be asked whether you want to continue or sign up. I presume that if you choose to continue, Pandora will ask you every few selections whether you're ready to sign up. And the only problem is there is no clear way to sign up, only to sign in. And you can't sign in until you've signed up. Most services that require users to log in offer an option to create a new account right on the login page. So that's where I went, and indeed, that is what I was looking for. But there should have been a link to that from the main page. Note to Pandora, put a new account link on your main page. So, I signed up. Here I'm going to put on my editor's hat, and I'm going to toss in a minor quibble. Pandora asks for my gender. It was really wanting to know my sex. Sex is a physical characteristic. Gender is a social characteristic. I'm not sure when sex became gender, but it seems to be endemic, and I should probably just quit fighting it. Okay, so the next step is to decide whether to pay $36 a year or to pay nothing and accept some ads. Uh, More about the ads coming up. Most new users will probably try the ad-supported version first, just to see how annoying the ads are. You can always upgrade later. So, for my test, I selected a moderately well-known singer-songwriter by the name of John Prine. He's put out maybe a dozen CDs over the year. Not really very widely known. I heard him on XM Radio's Bob Edwards show. The Music Genome had heard about him, too, and selected similar artists, including a few I'd never heard of before, but ones I enjoyed listening to. Then I created a new station, based on a relative newcomer who has only two CDs to her credit. I can't recall when, or where, or how I heard of Katie Malua, but I like her sound. I've mentioned her previously. Pandora began by playing a tune by that artist to confirm that's the person I meant, and to be sure the selection was one that I liked. After all, it's possible for your favorite artist to sing a song you utterly detest and one you wouldn't want to base a station on. You don't want the station to be based on the wrong person or the wrong selection. Next, Pandora picked a song by Nina Nastasia and told me why it thought that this was a fitting selection. I agreed, but if I had disagreed, all I have to do is provide some immediate feedback through a link right at the bottom of the What's Playing screen, or I could select an expanded feedback form. There's a menu that lets you purchase music by the artist, and that's probably how this project makes its money. Not necessarily from ads, not necessarily from that $36 a year fee. You can also create a new station based on a song that's being played, again on the artist or on the song, and you can create up to 100 stations. You can bookmark a song or an artist, or you can go backstage for more information. And if you ever wonder why Pandora is playing a particular selection, you can ask, and Pandora will explain. If you choose to write a summary, a quick summary of one of your stations, then it can be shared with others who use the service. I added Chris Christofferson and Bob Dylan to my John Prine station. They're singer-songwriters, and they belong on the station, or so I felt. 
So you're probably wondering just how much this streaming audio drags down the machine or your internet connection. Pandora streams music at 128 kilobits per second, so you will need a broadband connection of at least 150 kilobits. Dial-up is not supported. That said, Pandora doesn't seem to really need very much. After several hours of streaming audio from Pandora, my firewall claimed that it had been responsible for over less than 2 megabytes of data. Given the quality of the audio, that was clearly impossible, so I had to do a little research. That research revealed that the IP address that Pandora was using changed regularly. In fact, it changes with each selection. I'm not sure why they've chosen to do it that way, but it doesn't create any problems. And I mentioned those ads. What about those ads? Yeah, what about those ads? Uh, I've been using Pandora for several weeks, and I have never seen or heard an ad. I'm sure some will appear eventually. But right now, the free service is just fine. I would give the Pandora service a rating of four TechBiter Worldwide cats. My only complaint, of course, is that it doesn't work on dial-up. But that's hardly Pandora's fault. If you want streaming music, you're going to have a high-speed connection. And even with a high-speed connection, at least the one provided by Wide Open West, there is some stuttering. When Wide Open West is actually giving me what I pay for, I get a very good connection, good-sounding music. From sound to pictures, occasionally I hear from somebody who has, unfortunately, ruined a digital photo. The request often is to identify a way to fix the image, and unfortunately, most of the times, there is not a way to fix one of those images. That's why I have a couple of ironclad rules for working with digital images and some suggestions for doing things in a way that you won't have to hope for a magic fix. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I've got an example of how an image can be ruined, and ruined very quickly. I started with an image that's a fairly large image, 2,800 pixels wide, 2,100 pixels tall. It was taken with that low-cost Olympus point-and-shoot camera I talked about last week. So even the original image wasn't superb, but at least it's reasonably sharp. And to show what's going on, I enlarged the image so that we're looking at just a small central part of the image, a very colorful plastic flower. I began by opening the image and saving it several times. And as if you look at the images, you'll see that each progressive image is just a little worse, a little fuzzier. You'll see a little more color fringing, a little additional discoloration and noise in the image down through the entire series. It's a fairly long series. But every time you save the image, every time you open it and save a JPEG image, it gets just a little bit worse. Finally, by the bottom images, you begin to see even on the thumbnail pictures that are on the website, without even clicking them and seeing the larger image, you begin to see kind of a rainbow effect and some definite fuzziness in the image. So, the ironclad rules, number one and number two. Number one, never, ever work on an original image. Before you do anything to that image, save a copy of the file and work on that. When you do that, you'll always have that untouched original to go back to if something goes wrong. Ironclad rule number two, save your copy in a lossless format, preferably 
using the editing application's native file format. JPEG files, that's the format that most digital cameras use, is a lossy format. So before you do anything at all to the image, some of the information from the camera's sensor has already been lost. If you open, edit, and save that file several times, you'll just introduce additional loss. So save it in the editing application's native format. And a couple of suggestions. Suggestion number one, use an editing application that allows you to make changes by applying those changes to adjustment layers instead of modifying the original image. That means you'll have to spend some time learning how to use the layers. It will be time well spent. And suggestion number two, when you get finished with the image, most of these applications will give you the option of flattening the image. Don't. If you flatten the image, you're throwing away all of those adjustment layers. Yes, the file will be larger to store if you keep all those layers, but that's the point. You can go back later and turn off some of the adjustment layers, or you can discard the layers entirely and get back to your original image. In Nerdly News this week, an update on the Vista update. So it's the Vista update update. A couple of weeks ago, I did an in-place upgrade from Windows XP to Windows Vista. told you about that last week. At the time, I said that I did an in-place upgrade in hopes that I wouldn't have to format the drive and reinstall all of the software. Well, after a couple of weeks, I've decided that I need to do what I assumed I would eventually have to do, format the drive and reinstall everything. Now, it was a worthwhile experiment, and I know that a lot of people will successfully upgrade a computer from XP to Vista. In fact, that would still be my recommendation. As long as everything's working properly on your computer and you want to go to Vista, do the in-place upgrade first, but make sure you have a full backup. So I'm not surprised that things worked out the way they have, because a lot of software comes to this machine, stays on it a while, and then goes away. And the upgrade, although it was successful, has been exhibiting some problems that are symptomatic of upgrade problems. Problems were made a lot worse by Bitstream's Font Navigator. That's an application that comes with Corel products. I found out too late, and fortunately it is not compatible with Vista, and that happened only after it had made a mess of the Windows Fonts directory. So as a result, some of the system fonts are missing, and I haven't yet found an easy way to restore them. So possibly because of this or possibly because of some other issue, most of the components in Adobe's CS3 suite aren't working properly. Now, as I mentioned, this isn't entirely unexpected. I had tried the in-place upgrade just to see what would happen, and I did suspect all along that I would need to format the drive and start from there. So here we go. I have purchased a bunch of bullets, and I will be biting them this weekend. Formatting Drive C, installing Windows Vista, installing and updating lots of applications. And by the time you hear this, that process should be well underway. In fact, by Sunday morning, when the program becomes available as a podcast, I should be fairly well along the way to having all the applications back in place. And I want to say a thanks to Adobe. When Adobe's CS2 suite arrived several years ago, I had been running a beta version for a few months, and that beta version had left some junk in the registry. Getting CS2 installed back then took a lot of effort on my part, as well as effort by Adobe's support team. 
I was concerned that might be the problem this time around, too, because the applications are crashing, and now I can't run the transfer license process. Not to fear, says Adobe. The company has changed its activation process to one that is more like the one used by Microsoft for its Office applications. The installation is machine-specific. What that means is when the installer contacts Adobe to activate the license when I reinstall it, the entire process will know enough about the machine to understand that it's running on a machine where it's already been installed successfully and activated. So the activation should go without a hitch. And as an indication that Adobe must be doing something right, the company says that it exceeded Q2 expectations. Results were driven by record performance of the Creative Suite products and Adobe Acrobat. So, good for you, Adobe. And I have a warning. Do not put your keyboard in the dishwasher. Why do I feel a need to point that out? Well, I was listening to... NPR's Morning Edition last Thursday, and they were talking about someone who had tried putting a keyboard in a dishwasher. And in fact, if you go to Google and try a search with the words keyboard and dishwasher, you'll find descriptions by people who put their keyboard in a dishwasher. Most of them without much success. So, yes, somebody actually tried it, and, yes, there are some people recommending it. Yes, keyboards get dirty. Yes, they have more germs than you'll find on a lot of surfaces in bathrooms, surfaces you probably wouldn't want to go around touching. But, no, the dishwasher is not a good place to put a keyboard for cleaning. You wouldn't put an MP3 player in a dishwasher, or a camera, or a notebook computer, or a portable television. Why? Well, because those things contain electronic devices. Oddly enough, that's exactly what's in a keyboard. Yes, there's a lot of mechanical stuff in the keyboard, but there are electronic components in there, too. Electronic components and water don't mix well. So, no matter what you hear from whatever source, do not put your computer keyboard in the dishwasher. Do not take your computer keyboard into the bathtub or the shower with you especially if it's still plugged into the computer and the computer is still turned on. And on that note, thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 17th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And from there, you can send me an email. Thanks. Bye-bye.